Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, September the 21st, 2022. I've done a show about COVID for a while, and uh, of course, it's back in the news at the weekend. Joe Biden, the American president, declared that the pandemic is over, even though 400 people apparently are dying daily. And then he, of course, had to clarify his comments, suggesting that the pandemic is basically not where it was, which goes without saying the pandemic is always moving. Um, and that was the, the news out of California where I'm talking to, to you from. The pandemic is not where it was. Uh, and uh, I wonder where it is right now, maybe under the bed. Um, most people don't seem to believe it's over. Demonstrators, for example, outside the White House today, a photograph in the New York Times demanding action on what they call chronic fa fatigue uh, syndrome and long COVID. Meanwhile, the charts have reappeared, all those vaccinations and hospitalizations and worst of all deaths over a million now in the united states um the charts are very confusing as they've always been just as the maps are confusing we've had the reappearance of the map in the new york times maybe it never went away i haven't been paying much attention the maps are back and there are some darker spots actually interestingly enough around tennessee uh, where my guest today is based. Um, his name is uh, Alex Jahinga. He's a doctor in Nashville, and he has a new book out, appropriately enough, uh, given our conversation today about COVID. Hotspot, a doctor's diary from the pandemic. He's talking to me from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Alex, uh, welcome. Um, it's easy to, of course, make fun of, of Biden. We all know what he meant. Uh, but in your mind, as a doctor on the front lines, um, is COVID over? Well, I think, um, as you said, it's. It, I think we all kind of I have an idea of what Biden meant, right? The virus is still here. People are dying. People are getting sick. But fortunately, when people are getting infected now, it's not as, as disastrous as it was two years ago. So testing, we have access to treatments, we have access to vaccines. And so um, I, I think we all are now living um, a life post COVID that involves just being aware of the risks. And, um, but to say it's just miraculously gone away one day, I don't think anyone's really, anyone who's serious doesn't really believe that. Trump used to say at the beginning, at least that it wasn't that different from the flu or a bad case of the flu. Is it becoming Alex more like the flu in the sense that the flu killed people too? It's always been around. You're supposed to be vaccinated. It's never going to go away, but it had, it, has and will recede from the headline? Well, to an extent, yes, except that what we don't know yet is, is a very small group of people have these you know, effects, the long COVID, as you've heard people um, refer to. And so I think what is interesting is what the long-term implications um, will be of people who become ill. Uh, I don't know that yet. Um, but when it came to the immediate moment of, you know, I, I actually, for the first time, um, became ill with COVID uh, two months ago. And it, it kind of knocked me out pretty good. I've, I'm up to date on my vaccines, but we had medications that we were able to use and, and 
treatment modalities. And yeah, for me, it was like, it was, it became like, what if I had the flu? But what I, again, what we don't know and we see is people who have these long COVID symptoms and time will tell. So I think the best way is to try to minimize um, getting it. But gosh, I think we were, as, as you know, very different place than we were two years ago. So let's talk about the book. It's just out, uh, Alex, Hotspot, A Doctor's Diary from the Pandemic. Why did you write it? What's the point? There have been a number of books written in diary form about experiences in the pandemic, particularly from medical professionals of one kind or another, doctors, nurses, ambulance drivers. What did you have to say that hasn't been said before? Yeah, so look, I, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I, I think it's a lot of people don't realize this. And somehow by fate and circumstance, when COVID hit the city of Nashville, I was asked to lead the task force. Because at that time, I think like a lot of people, we thought this would last a couple of months. Um, I am I am an immigrant to the city from, from Iran. So when I was six years old, my family moved from Tehran to Nashville. So go figure that move out. You know, most people move out west or north, northeast. Um, I am also a father of, of three young kids. I am a son and a grandson to elderly parents. Um, and we went, the city of Nashville in this one year of COVID underwent um, so much from the pandemic. We had a bombing. We had um, tornadoes. We had um, riots that resulted in our city hall being burned down. And literally this one year in Nashville, is a, a city that is, prog um, is a progressive city in a very conservative state. Um, the implications of what that meant for a response, I, I shared uh, in this book. Now, the reason I wrote the book, though, um, initially didn't start with an idea of writing a book. I thought this was going to be a couple of month um, endeavor. Uh, my, my, my wife is British and my father-in-law, or excuse me, my mother-in-law's father was a World War II pilot. And when he passed away a year or two before, um, she pulled out all these letters that he had written to her mom during World War II. And those letters, when I remember reading them, to, it was just so amazing to be able to relive his experience. So at the moment the, the pandemic hit, I thought it would be interesting if I wrote a little something for my young kids who at the time were kindergarten, first grader, and a third grader. And I just kept keeping notes. And a year and a half in, we had these notes that talked about so much that we had gone through. And again, this is not a day-to-day -day account of COVID. Rather, it's what was it like for a, for a new American in, in the South? What was it like for a, a, um, to lead in a place where your, my kids were out of school? What was it like to lead in a place where um, the vitriol you heard nationally around COVID was bought into by a lot of people who live who around my neighbors? And, and, and how do you navigate that? And so what I hope this adds is a perspective of, of that year and, and some of those lessons. It's interesting. When I was um, thinking about our conversation today, uh, I was reminded of a, a conversation I did a, a couple of months ago with a Sikh immigrant to the United States, Simranjit Singh. He has a new book out, uh, The Light We Give, How Sikh Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. Um, he also came to a town in the South, San Antonio, and he writes about his experience there. He's not a doctor, but it sounds to me as if in COVID, a lot of the, a lot of the problems, uh, the injustices, the biases, uh, the deep problems of the South manifested themselves dramatically. Is that the case in Nashville, in your experience? 
You know, I, I think to an extent, right? I, I think one thing the South has maybe more so than other parts of, of this country is health disparities. Um, you know, we have a higher, higher rate of uh, informal African-American communities. We have obesity, uh, cancers, uh, and then there's distrust amongst communities. So um, National American historically has that, that, that group has a distrust because of a lot of things that happen in the South of some of the mainstream politicians um, and, and healthcare industries. Um, we have Nashville, which I think a lot of people don't realize, has a 12% new Americans or immigrant population. Um, one of the challenges is when we took over this response is there's a lack of trust amongst that community of a government entity coming in and wanting to give them, um, take their names and, and numbers and, and swab them, right? Um, then I think there is always the, some extent at some parts of the state of the fear of the other. When I did my second ever press conference where I was, and the first one where I was announced as the chair of the task force, I made it very that I was grew up in Nashville, that I was one of one of these um, locals. And, and I think and I did this in a field where the rest of the press conference was, um, you know, 50, 60 year old white males. And I felt that was important because growing up in the South, there were certain um, certain experiences I had, which, which shaped me and, and they were hard and their, their experiences were bullying. And that's something that we could talk about if, if you want, because that those, those bullying experiences I had as a kid ended up manifesting again. Um, became oh, uh, so, sorry, Alex, uh, bowling, uh, you mean bullying, uh, bullying. Oh, bullying. Right. So yes. So, and, um, and seeing, um, uh, seeing, uh, uh, sorry. Um, uh, uh, Singh, uh, Simran Jeet Singh had the same experience of bullying. I thought you were saying bo uh, uh, bowling. <laughs> that's my, that's my uh, southern version accent. experience of bullying uh, rooted in race and in the fact that you're clearly uh, of a different skin color, different origin to many of the people, but certainly the whites in, in Nashville. Well, you know, I think when growing up, yes, um, you know, I had I was a kid with a funny name, with uh, didn't wear the cool clothes, who was learning the language, whose parents have accents. Um, yeah, very similar, I, interestingly enough, to sing in San Antonio. Oh, interesting. Um, this this go around. Well, one thing that really was was fascinating to me is again, I'm a private like person. I'm a I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Um, has a practice. Um, I've never been involved in the public, never had the public eye. And, and immediately I started feeling the, the, the effects of cyber bullying. And, and, I, and again, it doesn't bother me per se, but what was interesting is while a majority of it was, I was the evil guy who was telling people mistruths about COVID, which I, I was not, um, there was some, sometimes certain implications around my, my background, you know, Comments. I remember one one thing was, well, I hope the Ayatollahs would hang you for what you're saying, or something to that effect. And it just surprised me, to be honest. So um, while I'm a lot more comfortable in who I am now, obviously as a professional, grown adult, um, those those wounded wounded um, wounds of a kid still would come up every once in a while for me. Yeah, we did a show a couple of years ago with another Iranian uh, immigrant, Roya Hakakian. She has. Uh... A book out called a beginner's guide to america for the immigrant and the curious she's quite sympathetic to the united states as an immigrant i assume you are too but certainly your book comes 
with some caveats. Um, were these things that surprised you? They certainly don't surprise me as an outsider. When you say these things, you mean... Well, the bullying, the racism, the stuff online. I mean, that almost... Well, you know, yeah, you know, I... Um, in a way, they surprised me in that I never realized how much of a... Um, this whole society has become a schoolyard full of bullies, right? Uh, anyone can, through a phone or a computer, um, say whatever they want without consequence, um, make threats. Um, and, and I think it's so important. It was surprising to me in that, that it's just done so laissez-faire, no, no, complica no um, recourse. And what I worry about is those who can't navigate that. And I think I have a, developed a much thicker skin. I worry what it means for us as a society when we show really big, important problems and then what it means for those individuals who are subject to the bullying, who don't have the thick, thicker skin that I and others have. And so, yeah, that surprised me. Um, the, you know, when this pandemic started in Nashville, and I suspect around the country, um, people would rally together. They would support each other. Nashville has a, this Nashville strong model motto, which I suspect a lot of communities have, in which we come together and help each other. But, but, because of what was happening on the federal level and the dialogue of, of President Trump um, and, and others, very quickly there was this div division amongst our society, which did not help um, both with COVID, but also didn't help with people coming together to solve the bigger problems that we're all now facing, whether it's the environment, homelessness, um, or or debt. I mean, it's just really is, is a sad um, yeah, how place we, we had a very distinguished physician, Robert Pearl. He's a Californian physician. You're probably familiar with him. He's the author of Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, a very important critic of the American uh, medical system. He was on, he's been on the show a couple of times, but he talks about what he calls the parallel pandemics of COVID anxiety and gun violence, a part of the same crisis of not just, I think, American healthcare, but of American society. Would you agree with that? Very much so. You know, when I took over as chair of the National Board of Health right before COVID as a trauma surgeon, as an orthopedic trauma surgeon, um, the big thing I was noticing is the incidence of gun violence that's gone up. Um, we have, I think this is all part of the same, um, par same paradigm of issues. We become in a society that, has, that doesn't stay in touch with one another. We don't develop on a playground when you and I were growing up, um, you would play with 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 people and you'd have conflict on the playground and you get you figure it out now people can say whatever they want there's a lack of empathy um perhaps with with others and and so that may lead to uh, easier escalation of violence you know when you talk about the um the second part of your your statement about physicians um just this weekend i read 68 percent of physicians in year 21 reported um symptoms of burnout um, the year of 19, 2019, it was 32%. So we had a, almost more than a doubling of physicians experiencing burnout, um, which isn't good for our patients. I mean, it just isn't. It's, it's because you, you let things slip, you perhaps fall out of the system. And, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a problem across the, the spectrum. There are so many problems, uh, Alex. Um, you mentioned before Nashville... Uh, reflecting the inequalities of American society. We did a show with Stephen Thrasher uh, in August of this year, 
uh, about what he calls the viral underclass. He has a new book out, The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. To what extent, and I know this isn't your term, but to what extent was COVID really about a viral underclass? To what extent, in your experience on the front lines as managing uh, the epidemic uh, in Nashville, um, to what extent were poor people, uh, people of color, uh, people of um, people uh, outside uh, your world and probably my world, how were they profoundly victimized by the epidemic? Yeah, I, I think um, I think extremely. Let me just one word if I were to answer it. Here, here's the thing. Um, we knew early on that this was going to impact people who are historically impacted disproportionately by any crisis, whether it's an economic crisis, um, health crisis as, as such. Um, and in Nashville, we know whether it's our homeless populations or minority communities. One thing I'm really proud of, though, in our response is um, we as a task force recognized day one that this was an issue. And so one of the people that I, the first person I asked to join the task force was Dr. James Hildreth, who is the president of the Ameri of Meharry Medical College, which is one of four historically black college and university medical schools in this country. Dr. Hildreth also coincidentally happens to be one of the most foremost infectious disease experts um, in, in the world around HIV and AIDS. Um, he's a contemporary of Dr. Fauci's. And so um, he's see, kind of seen this. And, and I bring that up to you because quickly we were seeing that this was going to be a problem disproportionately impacting those who always get left behind. And Dr. Hildreth, both because he and his organization had the trust of the community, um, was able to help us navigate. And it also he provided the Meharry Medical College staff manned our, um, our testing and vaccination sites for two years. The messaging to those communities of color from Meharry was critical. Our, our new American community, um, after a little bit of a hiccup, we partnered with people who those communities trusted. And all that being said, when vaccines first rolled out five months into it, those 55 and older who were black and those 55 and older who were white had the same percentage of vaccination rate, which is probably atypical for around the country. And those of Hispanic ethnicity had nearly 85% of those people vaccinated. And so I, I tell you that to say it was always top of mind for us. And we're no different than any other community other than we proactively engage with trusted people. And it wasn't just lip service. And uh, we saw results. So I, that is such an example of why, forget COVID, but every other problem we face that disproportionately impacts um, minorities, people of financially less able, we can solve it if we, if we find trusted people to really come in and help us and navigate the response. I'm not sure I share your optimism, Alex. Um, we had a lot of talk in COVID about everyone coming together. We had a lot of talk about Thrasher's notion of a viral underclass and how that's all going to change. But has anything really changed now that at least in Biden's mind, COVID is over or at least it's relatively over? Have you seen any structural shift? in Nashville, in Tennessee, in the health system, in the way in which we uh, treat people of color, poor people? Within well, I will say in, in Nashville, um, Nashville specifically, yes. Um, so this infrastructure we put together to address our immigrant community, we now use that coalition daily now to, to address um, childhood immunizations, to do um, WIC, so women, infant, children um, feeding, 
Um, some of the infrastructure for for um, sustainable resources for not the for that was set up for the pandemic also is helping with community outreach in our minority community. Now, with that said, um, while yes, I am typically optimistic, I think it would be a naive statement to say that that it's miraculously gone away. Our healthcare systems um, here and local and nationally have all gone back to essentially practicing as they did before, um, which as a country expanded access to healthcare beyond what um, the Affordable Care Act tried. And in, country, in states like Tennessee, we never expanded Medicaid. So we still have a high uninsured rate, which in the healthcare system of America, if you don't have insurance, you're pretty, pretty much hosed. Um, so no, is the problem solved? No. Did we see hopes and glimmers of what could be? We did. And I, I don't disagree. And unfortunately, we, some, a lot of that has not been sustained. We, uh, we've done many shows on COVID. One of, um, one of my favorite was with the writer, the journalist Eli Saslow. He's a Washington Post a journalist, prize-winning writer. He has a book out, Voices from the Pandemic, um, America Tell Their Stories of Crisis, Courage, and Resilience. He suggested that COVID compounded all the best and the worst things about America. I mean, one of the other headlines today is that in Minnesota, the feds um, found a brazen $250 million COVID spending fraud, essentially people stealing from the COVID fund to benefit themselves. Do you agree with Saslo? Did COVID, from your experience, did it reflect both the best and the worst in us? Oh, without a doubt. I, I think... Um, the best is some of what we've talked about. The worst is now you have people who believe there's two sides to science and to facts. You have people who um, work, uh, people like me um, for being healthcare background. Um, you have people who accuse people of, um, you know, you literally, I, I think there was somebody a few days ago accused me of taking $38,000 for every dead Nashvilleian. Um, from who died from COVID. Um, and then you have what you just showed is you have people that, that took advantage of all the funding that was put out there. Um, that 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 funding, I believe, is just to feed kids, went to people buying homes overseas. Um, I think we there the the good and the bad were amplified. I think the um, if we don't come together and and temper this this down, I don't see how we solve anything else, frankly. Um, but if we, we take in the good, I'll give you a good here in Nashville. Uh, if you remember kind of in August of, of 21, uh, people, there's no hospital beds anywhere in the country. People are being transferred to, um, to Indiana, to Tennessee. In Nashville, we have large healthcare systems. Um, and those three healthcare systems, which are very first competitors, came together and made a commitment that every person in middle Tennessee was going to stay in this region. And by them putting aside their differences, they were able to take care of people. Now imagine if we were able to bring those, that ingenuity um, to, to pass for other problems. We saw um, endurance, if you will, Meharry Medical College sent out people to the, to the most vulnerable houses and knocked on doors. That ancient endurance of never leaving anyone behind. Now, if you were able to combine that American ingenuity of the transfer center model I just told you about with the in American endurance of, of the African-American um, medical school helping their community, man, we can do some good things. But you know what? We don't have we don't have that in all aspects. And we have the vitriol that um, predominantly comes from the, from the political right. 
um, which literally says there's two sides of the truth. And so, yeah, I've seen both extremes and, and one gives me a lot of hope and the other one makes me worry for my kid's future. Can we learn from antiquity or from your culture, perhaps? Um, uh, my uh, Sikh guest believes we can learn something from, um, from Sikh culture about talking to one another in America today. Uh, we did a, a show with Nicholas Christakis, very distinguished um, MIT scientist, about what stories from antiquity can teach us about COVID. Are, are there stories perhaps from your culture, from the, the world that your family brought over from uh, Persia or Iran that can help us make sense of where we're at today? Yeah, you know, one thing that I saw um, pandemic is our renewed appreciation for the elderly and a focus on their care. Uh, you know, the, the Persian culture is one that reveres and protects its old people, works to their hard-won wisdom, keeps them close, not only for their protection, but also for our benefit, because we see their increasing years as um, a tower of strength rather than decline. So ancient civilizations like the Iranian culture, um, the Sikh culture, um, Southeast Asian cultures tend to value interdependence over independence because of they've seen too much war and invasion and disease. Other cultures like America, which I would classify as a young civilization, themselves often by an oppressive past. You know, they place a high value on striking out alone and making one's own way. And I think what is happening is often when, when young cultures like America um, want to seek, they leave their, their old people behind. And so I think that the pandemic may be doing, we learn this, is turning America into an older country um, in which we appreciate our, our elderly. And I saw this every day when we go out to vaccination sites and we bring our elderly neighbors and friends over. And so perhaps our cultures, the old ancient civilization culture of um, revering our elderly will maintain. And I think that has changed a little bit now. Alex, I think one thing we can say for sure is, and, and I'm the, certainly no expert on this, but everyone seems to agree that there will eventually be another pandemic of one kind or another. Are we ready for it? And if not, what would you like us collectively as individuals and as government and, in, and as medical professionals what would you like us to focus on so that we're ready for the next pandemic, whereas clearly we weren't ready for COVID? You know, I, I wish I could tell you, yeah, we're ready. Look, we've done this for now two and a half years and all these little things have popped up. Um, but I, I worry that um, while there are, right, there are hopefully um, the federal government has has fine-tuned some things. Um, here in Tennessee, you know, the, the state government has stripped away the ability for local entities such as Nashville, which at the time was able to declare a public health emergency and instill mask mandates and um, get rollout vaccine. We have, we have uh, essentially stripped away the infrastructure that was in place from the 60s, by the way, here in Nashville, to provide a quick reaction to a pandemic. Um, we have now made it okay to, to say, believe in in the science that it's not true and and so you should your own personal independence outweighs the good of the community and society so i'm worried that those are the aspects that um that will hose us down the road um you know public health has is historically been underfunded i think we've made some good strides to fund it better um, i'm sure if we don't pay attention over the next five years the funding will again go down which will impact it impact what we do um 
so I don't know if we're 100% ready. And what about with this book was to at least give people a, a guide locally here of what we were able to do and what we did do. So let's say the next, pa next pandemic is two generations from now. This will hopefully be a reference. And people will realize, gosh, they were able to do X, Y, and Z because of uh, um, these things that were in place that now we've stripped because it becomes political. So. Wow. It's important to have uh, these kind of diaries. Uh, of course, there was the... Uh, Camus, The Plague, which was a very popular book uh, during, uh, certainly early on in, in COVID. But now we have some more frontline experiences like uh, Dr. Alex Je Jahangir's uh, Hotspot. Congratulations, uh, Alex, on the new book. Uh, what else would you suggest people read, particularly in terms of perhaps uh, some of the problems that you've been talking about, n not just in the book, but in this conversation? Yeah. Um, you know, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, you know, two books I've read recently um, that, that really impacted, that kind of gave me hope, if you will. Um, one is a, a true story written by actually a neurosurgery colleague of mine, Jay Wellens, called All That Moves Us. And what that book, he is a pediatric neurosurgeon who talks about the act of pediatric neurosurgery. And, I, and I'm usually not one that reads anything if I can avoid it. But what it does for me is it, it showed me the humanity that medicine is and can be right i think some of us have lost that the good that one can do out of medicine and so and people who have lost faith in medicine and may not want to enter medicine or may not have faith in medicine all that moves us is great um the other book that that i think really kind of um as a new american for me mattered um was a book called sparks like stars by nadia hashimi it's a it's a historical fiction um, right around when the um, Taliban took over in Afghanistan and, and before the Soviet invasion. And for me, this this character it uh, ends up becoming a physician in America. Um, it really resonated because it reminds me of the hope that that place like America can be. And um, I hope, again, these two books, I think you've called it out well. I mean, I, I'm an optimistic person usually. And these books have allowed me to have some of that restored even after maybe the past two plus years have kind of beat some of it out of me.